Hi, friends. Welcome back to the Pastor Talk podcast. Thanks for being with us as we kick off a new series today. A little bit tongue-in-cheek, but I think some interesting material that we'll be covering over the next several weeks. And as Michael and I thought about this podcast and where we would go next, we came upon this idea to maybe think about the ways that Christians have disagreed with one another. You know, we live in a time where I think there's a pretty steady stream of disagreement, and that's not new, and that's been a part of our church experience and our Christian pathway for really since the beginning of the faith. And some of those arguments, Michael, have been historical and deeply important. Others have been uh, probably petty and a little flippant, and we want to spend most of our time on the important ones, but we may mention some of the others as well. Yeah, as we sort of set the stage for this, I think it's important to recognize that if you're joining us for the conversation and you've been a part of a church for any really period of time, it's likely you've experienced in the church some form of conflict, a fight of some kind, and that's par for the course when you're dealing with people, people who come in with different life experiences, with different expectations, with uh, different uh, preferences. All, all of our human nature is going to tend to push us to the edge of ourselves where we find conflict with other people. That certainly happens in churches. And of course, it wouldn't you wouldn't even need to go to Google to search to find stories about churches that have split over things that we would uh, from an outside vantage, call petty things like the color of the carpet, or the color of the paint on the walls, or the kind of coffee that got served, or whether you do potlucks. Or uh, uh, there's things that we would probably say are not important that have been the source of significant division and fighting within churches, not just in the modern era, but all throughout history. And we have to just sort of name from the start uh, that flows from the basic fundamental principle of human sinfulness. When we in the Reformed tradition talk about original sin, we talk about that, that state of being that we have really inherited from birth, just a natural component of being human that leads us to being self-obsessed, to being clouded to uh, our own interests. And in that, uh, we sometimes find ourselves engaging in conflict with other people just because of this natural tendency within ourselves. In this conversation, though, as I think you already said well, Clint, our, our intention is to not focus on the petty. The truth is, if you want to find petty arguments, uh, just load up Facebook or Twitter, and you'll find that within the first three posts. It, what we want to talk about is what happens when you give a sustained look at the significant conflicts, when when there have been times, especially looking back, hindsight's twenty twenty. when we look back on the history of Christians trying to live out the faith, what do we learn from some of those substantive conflicts? What was at stake? And what what is the implication of how those conflicts were resolved? And what we're going to start teasing out, what you'll see is sort of this division between what we've called sort of the, the pursuit of truth or, or higher ideals and uh, the separation of those things that fall away, the conditional things, the petty things, you might say. And I think as we work our way into it, uh, we're going to find that there's some substantial differences, even if they're maybe sometimes difficult to tell apart. Yeah, I think another way to get there, Michael, is that 
we, of course, have all experienced disagreements. And in any disagreement, the part of us that is selfish and stubborn wants to win, wants to get our way. And we have experienced no shortage of disagreements in church. We disagree over favorite music. We disagree over the way the church does something. We disagree over whether this program should be funded instead of that program. We we have those kind of things all the time. And to be honest, we have very little interest in making those a focus of our conversation. This is really about what are those moments in the church where we have had significant conversation and sometimes conflict over what is true about the Christian faith. In in other words, when we've come to moments of impasse where two different or multiple different ideas have have intersected about what is the nature of our faith, what is fundamentally true about being people who follow Christ or about God and Christ themselves, what have we done? And how have those moments of disagreement shaped the pathway of particularly our tradition, our Presbyterian heritage. And I think it is important because we all know that Christians are are not different than other people. We can fight about anything, but we have at times fought about things that were very significant and important, and we want to survey some of those in the coming weeks. And so, Michael, today I think in some ways we have the most um, – vague conversation, the one that's maybe the hardest to really sink our teeth into. Why do Christians fight? Why have these things happened? And there are some different explanations. There are certainly the personal explanation. There is, of course, sinfulness at work. But there's also some historical historical considerations that have set Christians up, really even from the beginning, to have a diversity of ideas. Yeah, uh, very much, Clint. And I, I just want to note one thing here before we uh, push in too far, and that is I think that it's important to start this conversation with this affirmation that Christians have historically believed that there is a thing that is true, that God has revealed God's self in Jesus Christ in a way that shows us something that is universally right. It is it is the way that it is. It is true. I think we live in a moment in which people are comfortable talking about false narratives. They're they're talk they're comfortable talking about bias and spin and things that appear true that are actually fake. And when we look at the Christian understanding of who Jesus Christ is, Christians have always started from this initial presupposition that who Jesus is, is a true and accurate representation of not only who God is, but what God intends. And this is significant, and I want to sort of illustrate it for just a moment. Um, One of the interesting things that you'll find if you uh, go to visit with a family after they've lost a loved one, every family, uh, when a loved one dies, uh, begins to tell stories about that loved one, about the good, and there's often laughter about the funny things that they did and their their mannerisms and their habits. And most of the time, those stories, especially in, in healthy family situations, those stories are pretty accurate depiction. There's some embarrassing stories. Uh, there's some really inspiring stories. Uh, and sometimes even families are able to say, yeah, you know, they struggled with this addiction or, or this was a, a major point of contention for them in their life. And and 
What you will find, though, is that there are some instances where the family will begin to tell a story about their loved one that, if you knew anything about them, just doesn't ring true. It, it may be there's some truth in it, but largely it's hollow. Uh, sometimes they'll talk about how this person you know, was uh, completely devoted to this, but there's so many parts of their life that wasn't devoted to that. And you get this sense very early on in those relational encounters that what is being described isn't fully accurate. It's not a complete reflection of who that person was. There's not enough nuance for it to be completely true. And what I mean to say in this is Christians have always hung our hats. We believe there's a lot at stake in how we describe Jesus Christ. Who he was as a person is the barometer of truth. It is the a bedrock and foundation of everything else that gets built on top of it, theologically, because we believe that Jesus is the revelation of God and God's intention for the world. And so that's significant because a lot of the diversities that we're going to find in the early church leading all the way to now have, especially in the, in the substantial conflicts, they have a lot to do with who was this person and what does that revelation teach us about who God is and who, what God's intention for the world is. And if we miss it, if we're not describing Jesus as he actually was, then we find ourselves ringing hollow. We find ourselves uh, inserting ourselves and our own interest into the person of Christ instead of letting Christ be that core barometer, so that backing to what truth actually is. And and this is a, a maybe it sounds abstract, but I think it, it will become very concrete in our future conversations. If you miss on who Christ is by a little bit, it has significant ramifications, not just for what you believe, but how you behave in the world. And, and so it is from that place that the church has continually returned in our substantial conflicts uh, to this idea of who is Christ, and what does that teach us about who God is? The word that we use in the church for this and in these moments of uh, seeking truth is revelation. And revelation means that truth comes for us. It doesn't come from us. It is something that we, we do not decide what is true. We discover what is true through the leading and the help of God's Spirit. And so as... Christians have drawn up sides through the years and battled over significant issues. What we believe has happened is that we undertook those moments with uh, a genuine sense of seeking what was true. And that, of course, means that as we are led in the direction we believe to be the truth, there are other things, there are other ideas and opinions that weren't the truth. And so in those moments of conflict, there were also separation. And some of our great doctrine, in fact, I can't think, Michael, of a significant doctrine in the church that came to the church without opposition mm -hmm. and without some sorting that happened. There, there was no, this may be a surprise to people who haven't maybe uh, had a lot of experience with church history, but if you've been around people, it's probably not a surprise. There's no doctrine of the mm -hmm. faith that wasn't fought over. There's no significant tenet of what it means to be Christian that just arrived and everybody agreed on on the spot, including some of what I would say are the fundamental beliefs 
that we hold to now centuries down the road. And so as we look at that, mm-hmm. we see that this has always been a part of how we discover truth. And as we seek to do that, it almost inevitably means that we're going to have some disagreements and some uh, conflicts along the way. And it may surprise you to know, uh, I think many people idealize the, the concept of the quote-unquote early church, as if there was just one group and they agreed on everything and then it got more complicated from there. And and the truth is just exactly the opposite because the early church developed largely in secret because of the oppression and the threat of the Roman government. There were pockets of Christians, and they had a hard time communicating to one another. In fact, what we have in our New Testament are the remnants of letters that were sent back and forth. As that got more difficult, those churches largely went more and more underground. And what that means is that they developed their system of beliefs independently from one another. And things that were held to be true in this community may not match exactly the things that were held to be true in this community. And so we have at the very outset this situation where there is an incredible diversity and an incredible freedom to kind of form your own core beliefs. And when the situation changes, that sets the stage for a lot of disagreement. Yeah, I think it may be hard for us to put ourselves in those shoes, Clint, but let's pause here for a moment and just sort of name the struggle for the early church. We have all of the world's information at our fingertips when we pull out our phones, when we go on the computer. These churches, many of them, only had fragments of maybe one gospel. So when they came to worship, lots of these small church communities were dealing with just a tiny amount of information of who Jesus was, passed on orally from one person to the next. And so while maybe in Rome they had some of Mark's gospel, over in Corinth they may only had a little bit of Luke's gospel, and in Ephesus they maybe only had a little bit of Matthew's gospel. And then you've got letters from Paul and other apostles uh, being sent around and passed around. Some churches have them, other churches don't. There's not the freedom of movement. So therefore, church leaders, which are, by the way, contested, you see that in Paul's letters, there's actual fighting over who is the leader. It's not as if they installed one pastor and, and everybody agreed on that. Right. And one thing that should be added, perhaps, Michael, is that what we have are the letters that ultimately stuck. There's an entire collection of other letters that say different things that were also out there circulating in some communities, and they contained things that the church later said those aren't helpful to us, but at the time, there was nobody to say that. Right, and that's the exact point, Clint. I think that's the best example of this movement that you were describing, is the scriptures themselves. I I think that people, especially when we grow up, we give Bibles as gifts. When we think of the Bible, we think of a thing. That's not what the early church thought of. That In the early days of the church, there was not the New Testament. that did not exist. There were collections of writings and things, which, by the way, historically, the amount of uh, unanimity in the church's acceptance of those letters is actually astounding. Once the the Bible is what we call canonized or officially collected, um, there was an extreme amount 
of sort of universal acceptance of what books were there. But in the very beginning, these things are circulating and they're doing so in these individual pockets. And this is relevant because what you see in the scriptures is you see these things being sorted. The things that become helpful rise to the top and churches give them more uh, time. They read them more often. They give them more credence. And the stuff that's less helpful begins to sort of fade away and go down the list. And what's interesting is Paul talks about like Apollos, who uh, he seems to be uh, in direct conflict with in church leadership. It's interesting that Apollos' letters don't make it into the New Testament, the Apostle Paul's letters. And that's not on accident. It's not by sort of historical accident that these letters got lost in transit or something. It's that the churches, uh, as time went on, believed that the revelation of Christ was most clearly communicated in the letters that we now have in our Bible. So to us, when we open the scriptures, it is, it's both common and accepted that this is what the Bible is, but only is that possible because of the conflict, and maybe conflict is too strong of a word, because of the sifting, sorting, dropping, emphasizing that the early church did, sometimes with with opposition, so that we might have the thing that we now call the Bible. So I just think, Clint, that's a great example of how from these individual sort of siloed pockets, the church slowly began to sift through organically what things uh, should be given credence, what revelation was most clear. And then as the church began to talk in a more sustained way, the, the threat of the Roman uh, Empire went from direct threat to actual uh, sort of cultural preservation of Christianity, a, a governmental protection of the religion. When that happened, suddenly these conversations quickly rose up from their local uh, places and they became national and in many cases international conversations. And and then we begin to see this sort of sort itself out. Yeah, so you can read any letter really in the New Testament written by Paul and you'll see that there was conflict at the outset. There were people teaching various things and and when you envision that there are all of these places that there are groups of people calling themselves Christian, but each has a, a, a little different set of information, each has a little different spin on some part of what it means to be Christian, then you see the stage that is set for the late 200s, early 300s. Now, we're almost two centuries. In fact, we are well very close to two full centuries later. I'm sorry, three full centuries later uh, from the death of Jesus, the resurrection. And in the late 200s, Christianity is becoming tolerable to the Roman Empire. The Emperor Constantine in the early 300s is pretty favorable to Christianity. And in 313, there is an edict sign that says Christianity is no longer illegal. Christianity now has the right to exist as a religion without Roman opposition. And when that happens, you have this moment, and and it's not really a moment because it, it kind of slides into it. It had been happening. Christians had been more and more accepted. But now it's legal. And so now all of these groups 
can freely and openly begin having conversations with one another. And when they do, they find out very quickly that they don't agree on everything. There are people saying, well, this is the way it is. And other people saying, no, that that's not right. We do it this way. Well, we think this. Well, we don't think that at all. And what we will be looking at in the coming weeks are some of those fights from the very early part of Christianity. They're not the only time that we've had fights, but there's a lot of them because of the nature of this situation that's been created. In fact, one of the first things that Constantine does, so in 313, Christianity is legalized. By 325, or just 12 years later, which historically is nothing, 12 years later, Constantine is so frustrated with the church that he demands they have a council called the Council of Nicaea, and he says, don't come back until you can bring me a summary of what Christianity looks like. In fact, he goes there and even takes a role in the conference. But if you've ever noticed or seen the Nicene Creed, it's the document produced by that meeting. And that meeting is um, is held by Christians, but it's instituted by the emperor. The emperor is so frustrated within a decade that that Christianity is deadlocked and has these these competing ideas that he says, go get it figured out because he understands that's going to matter. And um, Michael, so not surprisingly, a a great many of our early arguments in the historic church are theological in nature. You know, um, we would get to the point where they'll fight over how they worship and all those, but but that initial wave of disagreement is almost exclusively on doctrines, major doctrines of the faith. Absolutely. You have to recognize within the diversities of these local communities, there's also the reality that the earliest Christians thought of themselves as being Jews. Uh, There was this idea that they were participating in synagogue worship, that they believed that they were part of this community. In fact, if you remember Paul's letters, the idea that the Gentiles could be included was a a very sort of uh, challenging idea to the earliest church. So, once the Roman Empire turns, once this uh, proclamation is made and this council meets, the, the change there may to us seem so, sort of accidental, or it may seem unimportant, but the truth is it changes absolutely everything because for all of these reasons, the diversities of the early church made a consistent, unified sort of religion very difficult to sort out. It, it made it very hard to, to uh, reconcile, okay, so was Jesus this? Did he teach this? Or did Jesus teach this? And what's the implication of what Jesus taught? And what's with this whole Trinity thing? This church emphasizes it. This church doesn't talk about it at all. We need to sort this out. And what I think you discover if you do some reading in early church history, Clint, is that not only is there conflict, but it is in some cases literally violent conflict. I mean, we're, we're physical violence. There is a sense that what is happening in those earliest conversations is incredibly important, that it is substantial, that what you need to figure out uh, needs to be true. And I think that one of the things I've always appreciated looking back on human history is that God, through God's providence, has worked through all of these 
human conflicts. I mean, as humans have gotten uh, sideways politically, as even the emperor of a a secular empire uh, with a very nasty track record is calling some of these meetings, God is still able to bend these things to to good in the history of God's work in the world. As the church begins to understand uh, who the church is and what the church is called to be, God is using these, what we might say looking back, some really strange sort of circumstances to help the church along that journey. Yeah, and, you know, again, most of those initial moments, we we had disagreements. The, the church, unfortunately, as it finds itself increasingly empowered by Roman authority, to, to be honest, we would have to confess that in many ways the church doesn't handle the acquisition of power very well. And the church adopts some of the secular practices of punishing enemies, of purging the wrong, quote, idea. And um, some, of the, some of the fights of the faith have been examples, really, of the exact opposite of grace and of graciousness, of mercy. And there develops this idea that the church, from a position of power, has to protect the truth by um, exiling or or punishing or overthrowing those who represent a challenge to it, and and that that direction continues for for many many years. Um, We'll see it again in a couple weeks when we talk about some reformation. Ideas, but th- that pattern is unfortunately established fairly early. Once the Christians have some power to wield, they don't always wield it well, and that's kind of the nature of power. Um, having said that, Michael, l- let's uh, cover, let's pivot here and and talk about the, the sort of range of things as we move through this series. I think there are probably a range of things that we can see that have occupied a lot of the conflicts. Again, we both confess that we know the church can fight about anything, but if we look at this from a historical perspective, there are some mountaintops, I think, where many of the disagreements have landed. And we've mentioned theology, we've mentioned doctrine, and and we'll start there pretty heavy next week looking at some of those original kind of things that have to be sorted out about the very nature of the faith, some things that may surprise you because we've taken them for granted so long, but they were on the table and they were up for grabs. But as the church then moves historically, there are some other things that become flashpoints as well. Yeah, so as the church begins to become recognized, safe, I would even use the word institutionalized, uh, both as a uh, self-governing body with connections and with leadership structures. But also, you have to remember, uh, it became institutionalized within government because of Constantine's work. So that became a very interesting, challenging, sort of nuanced relationship that you know a historian would have to tease out for us. But this has significant ramifications. Let me give you an example. So what do you do when a person professes faith in Jesus Christ, but then when persecution comes, that person 
uh, passes off on their faith. They, they go before the authorities and they say, I, I'm not a believer. I don't believe in that Jesus Christ. And because of that, their family's not persecuted. They don't lose any goods. Uh, but then when Christianity becomes safe again, when it, when it becomes institutionalized, those same people say, I never abdicated the faith. I, I was just doing so in time of duress. One of the things that the church had to deal with, in fact, we have letters of some of the early church leaders trying to tease out and process, what do you do with people who seem to have disavowed the faith? Can they come back in? What, what would be the process of expectation for people to come back in? Um, there's these kind of sea change things that need decided. If you've got a church in Spirit Lake uh, and you've got another church over in Spencer, what do you do when a person moves from one town to another? Well, before the church was institutionalized, that was an organic process. A person say, I'm a person of the way, I'm a person trying to follow Jesus, and they would relationally make that happen. But as the church becomes institutionalized, as it becomes organizationally structured, you have to process, well, what kind of policies should we have for people moving? Uh, Is there uh, a faith requirement that you must pass that person on? And so um, these are just very microcosmic sort of examples of the huge task that was uh, put upon the early church, almost a burden in some cases, to figure out what should the practices of a Christian organization look like if it's going to be faithful. And I just want to sort of quick throw in, we're going to have a full conversation about what we call the Reformation capital R. This is actually made even more difficult and nuanced by the fact that the church has been having reformations, plural, small r, throughout its history. The, the church has had moments where its policies and practices were radically changed uh, because of a particular religious uh, sort of leader, like a Christian or a uh, a, a deacon, uh, someone, uh, maybe sometime, at some points in history, they were um, desert fathers, mothers, prophets, uh, but individuals who sort of uh, emphasized a particular aspect of the faith, and the larger church sort of looked at it and said, oh, yeah, we've, we've missed that, or we've not emphasized that enough, and then the church has changed policies and practices. And I think that there's been this sort of continuing sort of turn and movement, both as the church institutionalizes, but also as it comes into new cultures and new moments in, in history, it has had to reevaluate some of those core operating principles and redefine what it means to be Christian in that time and place. Yeah, and I think another place we see that is the idea of leadership. You know, in, in those self-contained churches of the first century— we see that Paul might recommend someone or that there may be someone who grows to a leadership position in that community and then Paul interacts with them. That that changes very much when we get to a structured, organized, institutional-type church. Now leadership becomes a, a more significant question because if you now represent a whole church— you have to ensure that those people who are doing leadership know the right things, that they teach the right things, that they enforce the right policies, that they have the right ideas, that they have the right doctrine. So who can serve as leader? How are they trained? How are they supervised? Who To whom are they accountable? These are all questions. And, and a significant number of conflicts, I would say, after that early Roman period, but before the Reformation, 
are leadership conflicts. There's a leader, as as Michael has pointed out, that begins to teach something that is slightly out of step with the rest of the bunch. And in some cases, that person's idea proves true in the long run, and it moves the church with it. In other places, that person is judged to have the wrong idea, and they are either um, corrected or uh, in some cases, uh, excommunicated, let go, because they they don't ultimately show that their idea is um, the direction the church should now move with them. And so leadership becomes a, a major source of conflicts. Uh, to some extent, probably to a lesser extent, I, I, ironically, other than the Reformation, Michael, ironically, probably in our lifetime, maybe as much as any other time in the life of the church, worship. Mm-hmm. W- worship is for the first, well, not the first two centuries, but after three, from 300 on for quite a while, worship is pretty standard. There, there's going to be a, a pretty consistent way that it's applied. But in the late 20th century, there are hundreds, literally hundreds of ways to worship. In the Reformation, there are changes to worship, though, again, relatively consistent within each tradition. But in our lifetime, we've seen uh, just a, a myriad of ways that people have said, this is how we can worship. And that has spawned a, a lot of conflict, been a lot of uh, what has sometimes been called worship wars. Yeah, you know, I think what's interesting, as we'll turn to that in a later conversation, what we find in the historic church is that most of these conflicts have existed the entire time, but we see them come up in different ages with different emphasis, and oftentimes, I would say, with sort of different fundamental presuppositions that lie underneath them. I I won't tease that out in this conversation. But, Clint, I think the thing that worship really helps us see is that within that one topic, we have both the idea of worshiping is supposed to be giving glory to one beyond ourselves, and yet worship for humans can never be completely separated from what we prefer, what we grew up with, what what we think helps us worship. And so differing times, differing ages are going to tackle these questions in different ways. Ironically, some of the conflicts we saw in Reformation over what is worship properly observed, we had different versions of those conversations when we brought in drum sets and other kinds of things in churches. We'll talk about that when we get to it. But these conversations, the point for today is these conversations are not somehow disconnected. They they share these themes. They share these sort of occasional revisiting of the thing that we thought about before. And so it's good to understand that that prior argument because I think it helps illuminate the argument we may be having now. I think another place for that, Clint, uh, lives in our own culture and political moment. This is a time uh, where I think many of us struggle to sort of separate fact from fiction in our own experience of the world. There's just so much opposition. There's so much uh, fighting both uh, between parties and within parties, whether that be political or whether that be different sort of uh, persuasions. And I think as we sort of walk into this from a faith perspective, that too is not new. The church has had very interesting, tenuous relationship with both culture and political institutional 
governmental leadership throughout our entire history. And if you look at that, there's always been conflict within the church. How close should we be to government? Uh, should we, as the church, sort of be a prophetic voice against a government overreach into people's lives when the government hurts the poorest? Should the church be the voice for that? Or should the church uh, try to be close to leadership so it can help sort of pull the reins as as that leadership leads. I mean, that is seen immediately in the church's conversations with Constantine. They they were trying to strike that balance all the way from the beginning of the church immediately after their experience of persecution. And those themes continue on through the history of the church today, much like these other themes. And I think that that in some of these areas, Michael, people may find this conversation more accessible. I mean, it it may be, if you've been a Christian for a long period of time, and if you've been involved in churches, it's probably very, very difficult to imagine a church having a vote on whether Jesus is divine, right. whether Jesus is the Savior, whether there's a trinity, whether Jesus is born of the Virgin Mary. The, the, that probably seems unimaginable that a church would ha- have a moment where they're going to cast ballots for fundamental truths that we all have accepted for many, many, many years. However, it, and you may, you may not care how leaders get trained. If they lead well, if you're happy with them, you, you you may not give much thought to the arguments over who can lead, how do they lead, how are they educated, what do they need to know, how are they certified and supervised. That, that may not be an issue to you at all. But when we get to places like worship, mm-hmm. when we get to things like culture, which is just the way we talk about the world around the church, the sort of water we all swim in at the moment, when we get to things like politics, then I think this conversation over disagreement becomes more accessible, more personal. You know, it's fascinating, Michael. I've literally had people say both of these things to me. I do not think a person can be a Christian and be Republican. I do not think a person can be Christian and be Democrat, mm-hmm. right? The the idea that all of us are in touch with the issues that exist during our lifetime, th- those are the things that are happening all around us. And so as people of faith, we are always putting our faith in conversation with those things. And uh, I have sometimes thought it would be fascinating to trace the libraries of pastors and look at the books they had, you know, b- books on slavery, books on war, books on homosexuality, books on divorce, books on gender studies. You you could tell something about the era that pastor ministered in by what they read in regard to making sense of the issues that were present in their life and times. And I, I think in some ways, maybe those are the most um, interesting kind of arguments for us because we do resonate with them. On the other hand, they're the most sensitive. They're the most loaded, right? I mean, very few people are going to be hot and bothered by what the church decided about when to close the canon of Scripture. Right. Right. Uh, papal authority. It, that That's likely not going to ruffle feathers. You start talking about current issues, and uh, we can all get our blood raised kind of quickly. Yeah, and that's a point I think I'd like to speak to in this initial conversation, 
is if you're tired of the challenges and the conflict and the fighting of this present moment, uh, rest assured, we're not trying to dig that up in these conversations. We're not going to make light of all of the divisions and all of the struggles of this present moment in the culture around us. I think what we're doing is substantially different than that. I had a high school teacher uh, who once, uh, well, her her shtick, the thing that she returned to over and over again, was that if uh, we don't learn our history, we're doomed to repeat it. And as a high school student, I thought to myself, oh, that's a nice saying. And then as a college student, I begin to think, yeah, there are some patterns here. It'd be nice to sort of know those patterns, and then you know maybe it'd help you sort of predict what's coming, sort of a utilitarian understanding of history. As I've uh, hopefully matured a little bit beyond that point, I think I've begun to see that the thing that makes understanding history so significant is it gives us a lens to understand the world that we live in right now. And as Christians, that lens will help us to behave more Christianly. In fact, it'll help us to become better disciples of Christ. C.S. Lewis, a Christian writer, once said that every Christian should read a new book followed by an old book in that order, that, that we should never become so obsessed with our present moment and whatever the new thing is that we fail to recognize the truth that we find in the old. And I suspect if you continue with us in these conversations, what you're going to find is when we turn to these old conversations that don't get our blood pressure up, Clint, that what you're going to find in them is not only significant, substantial truth, but when you bring that awareness back to our present moment, you're going to find that it is going to become a kind of touchstone, a Rosetta Stone for our own experience of our present moment, because these substantive truths still exist today. Most of, if not all of our present conflicts have historical precedent, and yes, even within the church. And what you discover as we will go through these conversations is that yes, indeed, even in some of these literally world-changing conflicts, the church has worked through, by God's grace and providence, resolutions. Things that today we teach our confirmation students as simple facts, which when they were first debated, they were not simple facts. They weren't just a statement of faith, the, the Nicene Creed uh, that we now take to be self-evident. Uh, most of the things in those documents were substantially disagreed upon. And so what we can discover in our own moment of substantial disagreements is that there are ways that the church has faithfully lived out its call to work through these conflicts. And I think if you are weary of conflict, if you're weary of fighting, then you're going to find some balm in the truth that as the church has navigated these other fights, there is substantial reason to have hope that the same will happen in our present moment. Yeah, and I think that has worked in two ways, Michael. There have been moments where the church facing those issues has looked back upon its heritage and said, we stand on the truth that has been revealed to us. We, we look back to our forefathers and foremothers in the faith, and we see that this thing they've handed us is 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 beautiful and trustworthy and we stand upon it and upon their witness and we then use that to interpret the conversations and questions of our day on the other hand there have been moments 
where we look back and we see the humanness mm-hmm. of those who have gone before us. And questions like slavery and the inclusion of women and the way that uh, ethnic groups are treated or or the way that the poor have been marginalized. And we say that those people, while trying their their very best to follow Christ, were not immune from the blindness of sin. And and sometimes we look back and say they didn't get it right. And and it is this constant correction, this this course correction that happens through the faith that ultimately points us back to our belief that it's not in our ability that the church navigates its way. It's not our wisdom. It's not our strength. It's not our our processes and our structures. It is the Spirit of God moving us sometimes incrementally, slowly, towards truth. And and sometimes that's a truth to be preserved from the past. Sometimes that's a truth to be celebrated in the present and change the falsehoods of the, the past. And it it is a it is a dynamic and at times messy progress. And in that sense, th- these moments of conflict uh, are a driving force. Now, how we argue matters, how we disagree matters, but it is largely the history of those moments, those shaping forces of, of conflict even, that have propelled the church forward and opened our eyes to new things at times. And so a a church that would have no arguments, Michael, may struggle to move past the status quo. And I and I think that matters. It it is important that we continue to be open to the challenges of the word and the world and ourselves in order to seek to be the most faithful to Christ that we are able. Yeah, Clint, that's really well said. I think the word that I would use to describe that is we must bring humility to the conversation. Next week, we're going to talk about Jesus. We're going to look at some of the early church. And there's no way that we can have conversations about the truth of who God is and who God revealed himself to be in Jesus Christ without a significant dose of humility. And the human temptation in fighting is to beat your opponent and then to gloat about it, right? It's to bring this triumphal sort of uh, attitude to life and say, I'm the biggest, strongest. I won. I won the fight. That's all that matters. I'm in control. And when we look at Christian history, for the many times that the church has got it right, there is an equal and opposite, if not more, number of times when the church has got it wrong. So when we believe that we have some grasp of truth, when we have some grasp of the fight having won out, real revelation of who God is, the only proper Christian response, in my view, is one of humility and gratitude. Gratitude for those who were willing to engage in Christian conflict over a thing that was substantial and mattered. But humility to say, we should never rest on the idea that we have it all. Because the moment we do that, we have inserted ourselves back into the conversation as the sole arbiter of truth. And the only one who gives us truth is the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we must be humble. We must be humble as we approach the conflicts in our own time. But there's also a wisdom 
of bringing ourselves in a posture of humility to those who fought in these previous times because, Clint, it was not clear to them. It may seem to us in this moment like it was obvious, but conflict in many cases, though there's pettiness and though there's selfishness and arrogance all throughout it, oftentimes these things uh, seemed prescient. They seemed necessary in the time that they happened because it was not clear. And we should come to these conflicts with the same kind of humility that we would hope that those who live beyond us, who will stand on our own shoulders in the faith, that they will bring as they survey the conflicts that we are having in our own time and place. Yeah. And so if we were going to try to summarize this first session, you know, why do Christians fight? You see it behind us. Uh, at our best, we fight because we believe that we have been revealed a truth and that that truth matters, that truth guides us in the midst of falsehood. And we argue over that truth in order to preserve and to discover and to um, promote it. And, and so if this conversation seems dry, give us a week. I, I think there'll be some uh, I think there'll be some opportunity very quickly in next week's conversation to to put some skin on this, to uh, show you the ways in which Christians have uh, really from the outset had to um, be in conversation with one another. You know, that that's a, an interesting thing. We'll talk about it perhaps next week. But we, we never have really believed as Christians that truth comes from a single source. In other words, the, the person doesn't show up with the golden tablet and say, here's what we should do. It, it is a communal process to find truth. It involves a people, most often not simply a person. And um, that that is a strength of our system historically, and I think it makes for some very entertaining conversation. Next week, we'll take a look at uh, the dominant fights of the early church, the church of the 300s, that being who Jesus is and Jesus' relation to God. And that that's where we started. That's where you have to start. And some of that initial conversation uh, really becomes foundational for where the church goes from there. You know, by way of conclusion, uh, and administratively, really, uh, this is the 57th episode of the Pastor Talk podcast, and uh, it's just a word of gratitude for all of you who continue to join us for these conversations. Uh, It's been really kind of remarkable to see the number of people in that circle uh, grow. And so just thank you for uh, taking the time to spend, uh, to, to join us for a conversation like this one. And I think it's worth saying, as we begin this conversation, this is a great point for someone else to join in. So if there's someone who you think might be interested in in this, uh, feel free to forward the email. uh, Feel free to share it on Facebook, whatever. Um, Get people access to it if you think that they would enjoy it, Uh, because I think there will be some fun uh, if you can have fun in the midst of talking about uh, some of the historic church fights. I do think it will be illuminating. And if there's someone who you think uh, that that might be encouraging to, uh, be sure that they are aware of it. But that said, thank you for taking the time today to join us. We look forward to seeing you again next week in the next episode of the Pastor Talk podcast. Thank you.